the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to one of my absolute favorite cognitive scientists, Dr. John Viveki. Yep, you can call me a geek, that's fine. John is an award-winning lecturer at the University of Toronto in the departments of psychology, cognitive science, and Buddhist psychology. In this episode, we discuss the wisdom famine, meaning crisis, and the scarcity mindset. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. All right, so John, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? When I hear, hear the word self-reliance, uh, what comes to mind most for me is the Stoic tradition and Spinoza. Uh, and so um, it's not a matter of uh, willpower. Uh, I'm very dubious of the notion. Uh, the attempt to replicate Bomeister's idea of willpower in psychology has, uh, while it suffered the fate of many things in the replication crisis, it hasn't been replicated. So the idea that we have this sort of mental muscle, uh, our, uh, our ego that we apply, um, uh, this does, although it's very commonplace in our culture, doesn't have a lot of scientific backing to it. So what you see instead in the Stoics and especially in Spinoza is the idea of self-reliance as much more a process by which the imagination is trained so that the ordering of our ideas um, is, is much more in conformity with the ordering of things in reality. And so it's a training of the mind so it is more capable of its tremendous capacity of conforming is, uh, is, it, it is appropriated and used in order to bring us into a more, uh, well, a more appropriate relationship to reality. And so what that means is self-reliance, I would argue, is more properly understood as the effective long-standing ability to overcome self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns. So for me, self-reliance is not possible. And this, of course, goes back to Plato and Socrates. Self-reliance is not possible without self-knowledge and wisdom. So really what you're saying there is that it's about seeking authenticity. Depends what you mean by that. Uh, so authenticity, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very troubled notion right now. You know, it's a neat, it's this notion that comes out of Nietzsche originally, and Adorno has subjected to some criticisms, but my, uh, uh, my fellow Canadian, Charles Taylor, has done some work to try and get it. If by authenticity you mean um, a, um, an active kind of self-interpretation that reconfigures the machinery of the self so that we properly aspire uh, to uh, a wiser self, then if that's what you mean by authenticity, yes. If authenticity means 
the romantic notion of somehow being true to your true self uh, that's somehow buried deep inside behind, beneath all the layers of culture and all that. Um, I'm very suspicious of that second notion of authenticity. But if it means more the fact that we have come into a right relationship uh, of aspiring to our wiser self and that we are we have a kind of faithfulness to that, then that yes, then I would say there's a deep connection between self-reliance and authenticity uh, in that manner. So I would say that I would be an advocate of the former. So definitely that's kind of what I would see as being authentic, which I think leads really nicely into some of the topics we say we would discuss, which I think are really big topics. Um, and so the question really is, you know, can, can we in some respect kind of simplify this just so that the person, you know, a person listening to this who's never heard you talk about this, now, this part I really find fascinating um, so they can understand it, right? So I think the starting point, and I kind of re-juggled your question, you know, the, the, when I asked you, what can we talk about? And you said, hey, yes, some pointers. I kind of re-juggled them. And I think one of the places to start is this idea that you have talked about extensively is the current wisdom famine that is is quite noticeable especially in the western world which includes the meaning crisis and then how that as you have described puts us into a scarcity mentality so i guess the starting point would be what are you implying or what are you suggesting by wisdom that's a great question <laughs> and uh you're right um we, we, uh, we're, we are at risk of the sin of hubris here, trying to give answers to these questions that minds uh, far superior to mine, um, and I assume to yours, like Plato, and, right, <laughs> have wrestled with it. Um, I've, I've been lucky, though, um, in that I've not been doing this alone. There's a growing group of, you know, researchers that are working on this, and I, I help to contribute to a consensus paper that was published in 2019. And the core of wisdom is uh, a, a meta-perspectival ability. It's ability to become aware of your own perspective such that you can become aware of something that we know is true, but we gotta go from knowing it as a, 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 as a fact to realizing it in a particular situation. And this is the fact that we have to become into a direct awareness of, that the very machinery by which we make sense of the world and, and, and are intelligent in the world is also the same machinery that's biasing our attention, misdirecting us, and leading us into self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns of behavior. So it, in as, as simple a sentence as I can make it, the, 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 the mental processes that make us adaptive also make us self-destructive. And that sounds paradoxical, but it turns out not to be. And so what I would argue is, is that when, I, when we talk about wisdom, we're not pointing to like one activity or state. Uh, what we're pointing to is, uh, I, I use the metaphor of an ecology, an ecology of practices that can intervene in this very, very complex uh, process of cognition that makes us intelligent and shift the, pro the propensity, shift the probabilities. So we're much more likely to overcome the self-destructive self behavior and to enhance 
our ability to make sense and to deeply connect to ourselves, to each other, and to the world. That's what I would say wisdom is. That's my best shot at it. No, no, I think that's that's really good. So just as you were saying that, I was thinking in the sense of, you know, when I, you know, maybe just to kind of simplify in definition here, when I think of myself and I'm talking about my thinking mind, that that is thinking and perceiving and sensing the outside world, and I come up with these ideas that I may believe are correct, but I'm probably not going to know if that is the case until I actually put myself out there and test their validity and see if it actually matches up to what I'm actually thinking about. And here I'm kind of suggesting is that an embodied experience becomes something that is very fruitful in that endeavor where often, when oftentimes there's a tendency for many people, of course, and, I, and I'm sure you can talk to this, is that especially in the Western world and the way that we've been educated is that most of the way that we um, kind of make a decision if what we are perceiving of the world is true has to emanate, begin and end in the way in what our brain is telling us, right? what we are thinking. And we've kind of divorced ourselves from that embodied experience. And so mind and body have become separate. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think... Um... And perhaps at some point we'll talk about the four kinds of knowing. I think we uh, we have we've reduced knowing uh, to, as you said, sort of the propositions we form, the beliefs we form, the pictures we form of the world, and we've forgotten um, all the other kinds of knowing that have to do with uh, yeah, like you said, the, the embodiment, the embeddedness. Uh, so we are actually. Most of our intelligence is, is enacted in our sensory motor engagement with the world, how we're constantly, as I'm sensing, I'm moving, and as I'm moving, I'm sensing, and what's happening is what's salient to me, what stands out, what I'm attending to, right? That, and, and that whole process, that very complex dynamic process, that's the core of what makes us intelligent. Uh, manipulating propositions was something we were able to give computers a long time ago, a long time ago. And, and to be frank about it, they're better at it than we are. What we can't yet give to uh, AI, and which we're struggling with, although we're making progress, is exactly what I was talking about. Getting a machine that can navigate the world in a sensory motor fashion and, and direct its attention so that it can solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. That's where our, most of our intelligence is. And the thing, and what you said was really, really pertinent there. When we disconnect to that sensory motor coupling to the world, it's harder for us, right? It's harder for the world to make an impact on our intelligent behavior. But when we, when we reconnect, I'm not saying, I'm not anti-intellectual, I'm not saying shut that off, but when we re-embed it in the, the, the non-propositional knowing, then the world has much more access to correct us. And we also have much more access to not just represent the world, but to, to come into a conformity, a coupling to it, a bonding to it, that not only makes it more, make it more likely that we will be corrected in our errors, but is also more satisfying for us. We crave that deep sense of connectedness to ourselves, to other people in the world. That's the heart of meaning in life. That's the heart of religion. 
So extending that further then, John, just kind of moving into meaning, because I think what you're suggesting there is that's kind of where we're going, right? So we've got this kind of formative thing that we discussed where, you know, this idea of wisdom and, and obviously being, you know, careful and acknowledging that it's very difficult to define and people before us have probably done a much better job than, than we have although we're trying to figure it out for ourselves. And then how do we move this into meaning? Well, how does meaning connect to that? Well, I I mean, that's exactly the right place to go, Rodney. So uh, if what we're saying at least is plausible, um, then what we're saying is that wisdom is very much the meta-virtue, the virtue of virtues for helping to preserve meaning from being corroded by self-deception. Self-deception cuts us off. From ourselves, it cuts us off from the world. It cuts us off from other people, and so wisdom is is protective against that corrosion. And it's also it also promotes, it enhances the connectedness. You see, the, think of, think about prototypical instances in movies or literature of somebody being wise. What is it they're able to do? They're able to zero in on what's crucial, what's central, what's really going on. They're really connected, and they're able to disclose the deeper meaning or significance to others of what's going on. So our prototypical sages are, are those kinds of individuals. And that's why we, they, they are often uh, in, in fiction or in myth, they're often surrounded with an aura of sacredness because they intensify meaning for us. So how does this um, kind of build into what we started off talking about where I kind of just said, this is the whole conception where we said, Wisdom, wisdom as famine, meaning crisis, and how that puts us in a scarcity mentality. What are we, what are we finding right now? And I, and I would, you know, one of the questions I would ask you is, when you say that there is a meaning crisis, are we talking that this is something that is more prevalent or is only happening in the Western world? Is that where we're seeing it in the industrialized world? Because you know, if we went somewhere else, for example, and we went to the Amazon and we went and stayed with some time with some of the tribes, does that apply to them? Is it only us in the Western world that seem to be suffering from this, this meaning crisis? So uh, that's a tricky question to answer. That doesn't mean it's not a good question. It's a very good question. But it's a difficult question to answer um, because I've devoted most of my study is precisely to the West, uh, whatever that term is supposed to apply to. I mean, I, I've taken a look at other areas uh, like Japan um, and China to a degree, uh, and you can see very strongly versions, the lying flat movement within China, uh, the withdrawal, uh, that whole lost generation in Japan, there's, like, there's lots of, of symptoms. But the problem as soon as I say that, and, and people are right to say that, is that they'll say, well, that's because the West has you know, the, the Western way has been adopted to a large degree by China and Japan. And that's the, that's the nature of the difficulty, right? So um, if you were to ask me, are there areas of the world that have not been significantly colonized uh, by the West? Of course, I believe there are, but they're hard to get to now and they're hard to get data on. So I have to be more speculative. And based on my argument, I would say that the West is in a meaning crisis because it does not have a worldview that properly situates us or within it or gives us an ecology of practices for cultivating wisdom. I guess the reason why I said that was that 
at least from my perspective and what I understand and what I've read, and even my own intuition, suggests that, you know, if we look at how, especially in the West, how we've defined these cultures that are, for example, in the Amazon, we talk about, you know, people who are still hunter-gatherers for all intents and purposes. And of course, they've, you know, clearly many have been influenced, obviously, by the colonial powers. But even then, if we just kind of go back and we could go back to a time when that wasn't the case, their perception and their worldview is very different to what our worldview is, where they come from a perspective where everything is interconnected. Their society tends to be, not always, but tends to be egalitarian. They don't necessarily have a situated leader where leadership is fluid based on your ability and you take that role based on the need of the group at that moment in time. And I think the major part is the fact that they're so connected and they see themselves not as separate to, but part of the world. Their sense of wisdom and meaning is at a place that we no longer really understand. And I'm wondering how much of this kind of push towards progress in the Western world in the modernization of where we are going has caused this major separation. And I guess in, some, in a simple way of saying it is we've kind of been kind of sold a lie, I guess, to a certain degree. We've been told that, you know, if we think back, even when I think back to my childhood, you know, you look at all the predictions of what the modern world was going to give us by the time we got to the year 2000, many of those haven't come to fruition right? And people seem to be far more unhappy now in the West than they've ever been at any other time. And so I'm not surprised then that people are suffering and that they feel this loss of meaning. And how much of that loss of meaning is because of the disconnection that we have from the planet that we are on and not seeing ourselves as part of that ecosystem, but rather seeing ourselves as separate. And in a sense, you know, outside of that, of the ecosystem, because we want to dominate and control and, you know, we are superior. I think that was excellent, uh, what you proposed. Um, so I think, I mean, part of what I do, and I take a lot of time in the Awakening for the Media Crisis series to do it, uh, is to trace out that very history. Uh, Great series, by the way. Thank you. It's, it's fantastic. So, I mean, uh, part of what I, I tried to show was there's sort of a couple of crucial points. One, uh, one point seems to be somewhere around the Upper Paleolithic transition, in which human beings start to alter their consciousness and cognition in order to come into a deeper relationship and connectedness with reality. Um, and, and this seems to have engendered capacity for metaphorical thought and more self-reflection and self-awareness. And so, um, and, and I take it, and you have to be really careful when you make these claims, because you don't want to claim that current cultures are, are static or fossils. But I take it that at least there's a closer proximity to that, that revolution um, in, in indigenous cultures that have not been uh, colonized by the West. Um, but the thing for the thing is, 
Um, for us, that's inaccessible because there's been, a, there's been two more big revolutions. There's the axial revolution in which we, we came up with this notion of wisdom that we now carry that's different from the pre-axial world, uh, in which we didn't emphasize the connectedness, as you said, the being in harmony. We emphasize this notion of transcendence, uh, this notion that human beings have a capacity to uh, improve themselves in, in a fundamental way by coming into a right relationship with what is really real. You see this in all of the great axial age religions. And so we got this two worlds model. And then what the West did uh, to some degree is it took that two worlds model of up and down and made it future and present so that the Gloria, the, the, the really real would be in the future. And we have to progress uh, towards it. Uh, and so, for, and I mean this in a very important sense. I don't mean just as a false thing. The myth of progress is our mythology. And, we, and we're still running on it. Uh, but we, we, what, we, what we fail to realize is that it's a version of that axial age distinction. It's a way in which we're, progress is just another way of saying this is how we're going to transcend. That's what progress is. And the problem with that is that two-world model, it was destroyed in the scientific revolution. Science has, a, but that's the problem. We have, there's a universe. Think about what the word means. There's a one all, right? There's a one world. And here's the thing, that scientific worldview doesn't home us. Science, we have a scientific worldview that gives us scientific explanations of everything, except how we do science and how scientists generate the meaning and truth that is part of science. So we don't fit in, we have no proper place. Now, we can't simply go back, right? And what we have to do is figure out how do we get back though? How do we how do we salvage? And I don't mean that pejoratively. Everything we can from these other revolutions because we can't go back. We can't unlearn. We can't. Oh, you know what we'll do? We'll stop being scientific. You know what we'll do? We'll stop paying attention that there's been Christianity and Taoism and Buddhism. We'll just pretend that never happened. We can't do that, right? Um, so what we have to do is figure out how can we recover the great gifts given to us by the upper paleolithic transition, the axial revolution, the scientific revolution, the Renaissance, the reformation in our world now, that's the problem we're facing. That's the difficulty we're facing. So that brings me to my next question then. So do you have any insight or ideas on how we might achieve that? Like what could be some of those things that we could do so that we can honor the past, but move with the present? So, so part of it is to try and bridge between that scientific worldview and the project of human self-transcendence, transformation, education, etc. And one of the one of the main claims of my work is what's called 4E cognitive science, the cutting edge cognitive science, is put the four E's are the things we've been talking about, embodiment embeddedness, inaction, right? Extended mind that we don't just think individually, we think in systems of distributed cognition, like, like the way the internet networks computers together, culture networks brains together. Like this is now being made central. And so the science is starting to tell us about the processes by which we make meaning and make sense, that, that those are at the core and also what it might mean to cultivate wisdom. 
such that we could then help craft engineer, I don't know what the right word is, new ecologies of practices based both on these traditions and on this current science, wedding them together so that we can afford people overcoming foolishness in a systematic and systemic fashion and enhancing religio-connectedness in, in a systematic and systemic fashion, individually and collectively. That is a doable thing right now. And so I, I, I talk about this and, and, I, I, and I mean this respectfully. I have a very deep respect for, for people who are finding meaning and wisdom within the religious tradition. I, I, there's empirical evidence that they're right, that being in a religious tradition helps them cultivate wisdom. They're, they're, not, they're not lying to themselves when they say that. But all of that deep respect and even affection aside, I talk about a religion that's not a religion, that what we have to do is give up, right? The two worlds mythology, certain, uh, certain narratives that we have of utopia, uh, et cetera, and try instead to do something new, which is exact the past and wed it to the current best science to produce something that can deal with a situation that is novel to us. First of all, the meaning crisis that we're in, the meta crisis that we're facing in our society, and the fact that we are facing a increasingly rapid complexification of our society. Um, I was talking to Jordan Hall today, and he said something like there's been a calculation that uh, just using our economic system as a metric, that our society is about, uh, what is it, 10 to the power of nine more complex than medieval society, right? And, and, and so we are in a unique situation historically. And, and, and again, no disrespect, but I, I suspect, try to be really careful here, I suspect that the existing religious ecologies don't have what it takes to restructure themselves to do this. But they're, but they're that vacuum, I mean, it's being filled by noxious things like political ideologies and conspiracy theories, but it's also being filled by emerging communities of practices where people are, they're getting together and they're stitching together mindfulness practices and movement practices and discord practices and imaginal practices. And, 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 and you know, uh, I talk a lot with Ray Kelly, he's an exemplar of this, but, th but he is not unique. This is happening all over the place. You know, secular monasteries are growing up, right? And these people are now all starting to talk to each other. There is a new culture that is, that is, 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 is being born right now. And so, I think it's possible to do what I said, exact from the past, wed it to the best science engineering, and then put it into dialogue with this emerging subculture and help, help it to flourish and come to fruition. It's grandiose, I know, but we don't have a lot of time. I get it. But I mean, that's the reason why I'm talking to you, because in some respect, that's what I'm doing. Well, actually, that is what I'm doing. I've actually spoken to Raf, so I know him. Uh, he knows of my work too, especially in the martial arts sphere, but that's for another discussion. Um, I was just like, as you were saying that, I was just thinking that, you know, and I agree, this, this, the complexity that we're dealing with is heightening and moving at an exceptional speed. It's very hard to like yeah. kind of orient yourself and situate yourself within that and to find your place. And 
I guess that's part of the reason why people are feeling disconnected and feeling that they're alienated because they don't really know how do they fit in there. Now, I'm not sure if this is the right answer, but this is one of the things that I've been doing for myself personally, my own personal practice is that I've said to myself, okay, I recognize that there is complexity. It's very difficult to kind of fit into complexity when you don't fully comprehend what it is and where it's going. But one thing for sure is that I could, in essence, kind of look at myself and say, how do I take away at least the internal complexity for myself and how I show up in the world and simplify my experience? Kind of in a way, going back to those ancient traditions, the way that tribal people kind of saw the world, it's not saying that they, they weren't complex in their understanding, but it was very simple in how they showed up, right? There was a simple process. They didn't have to worry about all these other things that we now have to take into account. Yet they were evidently very happy and flourishing, right? So this is before the advent of all the things that we now find, right? The antidepressants and all the different psychotherapeutic processes and stuff. They had a way of dealing with their edges with the things that got you know in their way but in a way that was very stripped down and minimalistic and I just find that for myself that is something that's been very powerful one of those extensions of that is my martial arts practice is that my intention of always seeking functionality and always looking at what actually works ensures that what I'm doing is that I'm stripping away any of the unnecessary baggage or flowery stuff around it that doesn't need to be there in order to find what actually works. And so I just, for myself personally, that's something that's been very productive in my own experience and, and, and achieving my own goals. I think there's something very important there um, that I'm in significant agreement with. Um, you know, I do martial arts too. And, and so the thing that I'm, I'm interested in is, first of all, decluttering just as a, as a generally good piece of advice. Uh, we we're going to have to anyways. We can't sustain the amount of stuff we try to sort of keep close to us. We can't sustain them. We just economically, environmentally can't sustain it. So we're going to have to uh, embrace some kind of minimalization. So I think that's a foregone conclusion. So you're ahead of the curve on that. So uh, that's congratulations. Uh, but um, this idea, like you said, at first you said simplify, it was like, mm. but then you, you, then you said simplify to what is most functional. And I went, ah, right, right. And so what, what you're doing, right, is the, the, the question, uh, the, what, the thing that I'm both wanting to advise people, but also step back and yeah, but study it. What, did, what does it actually mean is this, and this is, a, this is an important species of relevance realization. How do we zero in on those practices that can transfer, right, are transfer appropriate, that transfer most widely, that, as I, as I try to say, that they percolate the most through all the layers of our psyche, and they permeate the most to all the areas of our life, right? So there's things you can take up. So I often do a comparison between some, and I don't mean all, some video games in which you can get tremendously proficient and you get you end up with video game addiction because that's what that proficiency doesn't transfer out in any way. You go into a simplified world, it's very simplified, the rules are clear, 
right? And that's why people are attracted to it, but it doesn't transfer. Two, when, when I started doing Tai Chi Chuan very deeply, um, I've been doing it for two or three years in my in graduate school, my friends came up to me and they said, what's going on with you? What do you mean? And they said, well, you're, you're much more flexible in your thinking. You, you're much, you're picking up on other people better. And then I, ah, right? Because I was having all the usual things you have when you practice it very deeply, the days where you're hot as fire, the days where you're cold as ice and all that stuff. And ooh, and I was getting into the flow state. I was sort of, I was sort of entranced by that phenomenology. And all of that with that, like, like you said, that's, that's fluffy, superficial. What mattered was the deeper stuff. Something was being changed at a deeper level that, as you said, is functional. It transfers. It, it, like I said, it goes deep into the psyche and it transfers broadly through your life in powerful ways. And the, one of the key to wisdom is to find those practices that mutually correct and support each other to do exactly that kind of zeroing in on what is most functional in that way we, we've just talked about. I think that's that, that's the key question. It's too easy. It's too easy. That's why I say ecology, and I don't say like a list or a bunch. Like everything fits together and self-corrects and works in an ecology, right? And, and so it, that's that's what I'm trying to get at with the notion uh, of wisdom here. So if that's what you mean, and it's that's what I'm hearing by simplification, that's exactly uh, what we need to. Pursue. And here's the gift that, that you're giving people when you say that. Look, we talked about scarcity mentality. When, when people are, 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 are hungry, they're scarce for like food or water or meaning, they, come, they become very short-sighted, very inflexible, very egocentric. That's what all the work on scarcity shows. So people that are, you know, the problem with the meaning crisis is that it, it exacerbates itself. But if you can get people to see the wisdom of this, simplification, right, this that you talked about, notice what you're doing there. You're making the process of changing their standard of living meaningful to them. People will undergo, they will elect their standard of living and their subjective well-being be hammered if you give them meaning. That's what happens when they have a kid. That's exactly what happens when you have a child. And when like every everything, your whole life is and your subjective well-being, everything. And you do it because you get that connectedness, that meaning. We are wired for good evolutionary reasons to take significant changes to our standard of living and our way of life if we have a good reason to believe that it's going to be meaningful. And what you are pointing to, I'm trying to, I'm really trying to share with you how it's so powerful because if you can get people to see the wisdom and meaning enhancement like we're talking about of this simplification, then you can simultaneously get people to accept the reduction in the standard of living that we're going to need in order to address the ecological crisis and the other crises that we're facing right now. It's beautiful what you just did. I, I don't know if I'm, 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 I'm capturing it, but I, 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 maybe I'm being clumsy, but I'm trying to say, like, if you can bring those two together like you just did in, our, in what we're discussing, that's the key kind of move. That's it right there. I was thinking too, as you were saying that, I think it's quite important too to define that there's a difference between simplification and simplicity. What I'm not, yes. what I'm not inferring to is simplicity. It's not the same. Yeah. Yes, yes, very much. I mean, so there's a sense in which you can, and this is not a contradiction, you can simplify your life 
while complexifying the machinery of your cognition, right? Uh, so, it, it, like, the, um, like you said, the, the, if you look at indigenous cultures, right, the, 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 the complexity uh, that they have about how they relate to their environment and track their environment and track their social uh, circumstances, it dwarfs ours. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, the simplification is not simplicity. It, 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 it's, uh, that's why I tend to use metaphors of honing, right? Uh, and, and ideas of optimal grip uh, uh, on the world they, uh, to try and get that. Because yeah, people, yeah, it's, it's like the, uh, the, the old biblical distinction between being childlike and being childish. We want to be childlike, but we don't want to be childish. Yes, very much. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. The other thing I was just thinking about there, and again, this is just for my own practice and the way that I've approached things, just to help myself deal with the very things that you've been talking about. And as I said, your series on this topic is, is really excellent. And I would recommend that you know people go and, and watch it, and I'll make sure to put a link um, in the description. Is that, again, maybe no scientific proof for this, to, to a certain point, but you know, for tens of thousands of years, we lived very differently to how we live now. And this kind of modern world that we find ourselves is literally just a moment in time. It's a blip on the radar, right? It's a second of, a, of an entire year. If you took the entire year, the lifespan of us as humans on the planet, it's like one second before midnight, before the new year becomes reality. And so, in my mind is that in any way that I can bring myself and inform myself from an embodied perspective with practices that my ancestors from that time would have been, been involved in and experienced, that that allows me that resilience that I need in order to deal with the complexity and the chaos that I'm now finding myself having to deal with in everyday life. And that's one of the reasons why I think um, in one respect, martial arts is such a beautiful practice because it harks all the way back to the beginning of time. And if we think about the first humans, however we want to define that, right? If, you know, some people believe from evolution and coming down from the trees and walking upright, or if you have a more kind of, you know, God notion of how we became part of this, this planet, definitely two things we were focused on. One was uh, survival and procreation. And if we talk survival, then that would mean that we would have to think about ways to keep ourselves safe, to keep, to protect ourselves. And so in that sense, when you practice martial arts, you're practicing one of the older, oldest human experiences that ever existed. And in a way it's kind of, I feel that it's encoded within us. And that's one of the reasons why I, I often say, isn't it interesting that if, as I look around the world, in, especially in places that do not require any martial arts training for self-preservation, right? In some of the safest countries in the world often have the biggest communities of martial artists, right? If you think about Denmark, Sweden, those countries, it's fascinating, right? They don't need it. What are they doing it for? And, but they, they are. What is that reason? Because I think it speaks to them on a very uh, kind of profound level, uh, in, for many of them, I think it's unconscious. They're not even entirely sure why that is the case, but it's almost archetypal, right? It, it is archetypal in the sense that that warrior archetype is something that we have always experienced since the dawn of 
mankind. And many of those traits that you often see in warriors that we describe, we always give these traits to warriors that are almost superhuman. And it's something yes. that we want to emulate because we see what they do and their ability as placing them beyond just the average person. We all want to aspire towards that. And that has, has been through our mythologies. And you see how we have always, even in the movies, right? And how we present the warrior, the, the hero. And so it's definitely a practice that allows that to happen. And so that it places you in, in a state that where you are for all intents and purposes, going back to the beginning of time and basically within a practice that has always been an important part of the human experience. I think it's very important to, I mean, this is uh, one of the central claims of body cognition uh, to realize uh, the debt that our abstract civilized, uh, if I'll put it that way, cognition owes to our embodied cognition. So Barbara Tversky, Mind in Motion, uh, the machinery by which we navigate the world in a sensory motor fashion is exacted in, and that's how we navigate conceptual space. We're using the same machinery. The cerebellum that you know evolved in order for sensory motor balance, we basically turn that on whenever we're trying to manage uh, the relationship between any complex set of variables. The cerebellum will be active. That's why we use balanced metaphors for justice and things like that. Um, so that's one of the core claims. Um, one of the things I would say is um, that what I see the martial arts doing is not only rooting us back, but exacting those functions. Um, so, so the brain, and this is the work of Michael Anderson, the brain constantly repurposes ancient machinery for more contextually uh, uh, sensitive uh, uh, things. I, I just gave you an example. We, we use our balance machinery when we try and de deal with the difficult issue of justice, right? Uh, and we try, somehow uh, we, we sort of tap into that machinery, but we also uh, try to use it in a new way. We, re we repurpose it, we, uh, we reuse the circuit. And, and I think the martial arts do that. I think the martial arts take um, our, our, our sensory motor capacity uh, for complex uh, confrontation and conflict, and they repurpose it. Um, so, so for me, you know, the, the, the number of times I've had to defend myself are small, but for, and, so, and, and I'm grateful by the way for that was there for me. I'm not like, I don't, I don't know, who cares? I care about that. But for me, if you had asked me what really matters was exactly what I was describing earlier, how the martial arts, like how they moved into how I was making arguments or how I was debating with people or how I was listening to other people. So I like, and I, when I, I like to talk about, and this actually came out in a discussion when I had with Rafe, and I want to, I want to talk to Jordan Peterson about this. So that, and you see this even in mythology. You see the warrior archetype actually being taken up into the sage figure, right? And so Yoda is a current example of the warrior who's actually the sage, right? And what's more important about him is the wisdom. Or you have Plato basically saying that Socrates is the new and better Achilles, right? And 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 that, and so that's a case of. So I think the martial arts, I, I do think that the reason why countries like Denmark, and, and so I, I think you're making an accurate assessment, 
right? It, it gives people a, a, a kind of sensory motor um, competence and confidence. But I think also the reason why those countries, those countries are also some of the most secular in the world. And the martial arts give them a way to aspire to self-transcendence and to a kind of wisdom that they can still um, respect. So I think it both, I think it's exactive. It's reaching back into the past, but it's repurposing it for the present. Um, that's how I would, I would say, uh, I would look at what you're talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, kind of one of my taglines is, you know, we prepare people for the martial arts of everyday life. And so, Oh, beautiful. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting. I just wanted yeah, yeah. to. Yeah. That's yeah, beautiful. No. yeah. And so the whole point is that, you know, especially in the martial arts and not to go into the martial arts whole thing, but in the martial arts world right now is there's been a kind of a push towards this kind of hyper competitive or reality, reality based self-defense kind of um, processes in absence of the art and the philosophy. And I definitely think something massive has been lost by doing that. And one of, one of the things that I've tried to do is bring that back, at least find the middle path between functionality and art, which I think is imperative if you're going to say that you want to take this practice and apply it to all other aspects of your life. Because you could be an excellent uh, you know, combat athlete and you could be great at the fighting side of it in the cage, but it may and probably won't unless you focus on the art as well, move into your everyday life. So it'll, you know, it'll stay within that domain. You'll be great. But at the end of the day, it's not going to show up in other aspects of your life. And in actual fact, I'll make the argument that if you're only focusing on the fight, you get more of the fight, right? So you move down the red road, which is a dangerous place to go. And oftentimes, oftentimes that's where, you know, people become unbalanced. And one of the just examples that I often use is, is that if you look at, for example, the samurai, which most people know about, if you look at the elders of the samurai culture at the time, they would always insist that the young samurai would learn all these, what's considered, you know, most people define it as a soft skill. I'd make the argument that it's not so soft. Those are the difficult skills of tea ceremony, calligraphy, and you couldn't just be okay at it. You had to be excellent at it. The argument then would be like, why waste time on that? If all I'm doing ultimately is to train this person to go on the battlefield and be an exceptional warrior, why waste time with all this other stuff? Rather just train the fighting. I think that the elders of that society figured out early on that unless you attend to that, the very person that you have charged to protect society becomes the very person that destroys it. If you don't have that balance, right? And so that's what I try to do in my work, which now puts me, ironically, as an outlier on the outside, because I'm not following the status quo. I'm doing something very different. And just, you know, reaching back to what you said, I always find it fascinating that if you look at many of the martial arts teachers that have come before me, Moriya Shiba, Jigoro Kano, you know, Funakoshi, very big names, you know, each kind of bring in their own kind of style to bear. If you watch the trajectory of their life as time went on, they moved from warrior, as you described, into sage. And yes. I, think there's, I think there's a very, very important reason for that, because ultimately, martial arts should be stand for a transformative function so whatever you were before you need to become something else but better a better version 
And that's really, again, coming back to what we started off talking about, where we take this idea of wisdom and actually flourishing that wisdom into our existence and making it practical within the world, that it then impacts everybody else positively around us. That was beautiful, Rodney. I'm glad I got to uh, meet you. That was very beautiful. Uh, and I, I, I mean that. The, the way you articulated that, um, excellent. Uh, yeah. Um, I, 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 and I guess what I would like to do right now is just encourage you to keep going, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, Plato's point, the guardians have to be philosophers, right? Yes. Uh, and um, you're, you're bucking the status quo, but the status quo is killing us. Uh, people, the meaning crisis is, is, is destroying lives um, and, and, and it's hamstringing us. It's reducing uh, the, the, the wisdom and the cognitive flexibility and creativity we need in order to address the meta crisis, what Thomas Bjorkman calls the meta crisis. So if you're bucking the status quo, that's probably a good sign right now. Um, and uh, I would encourage you to keep going because the way, the way, yeah, the, the, the martial arts is moving us from warrior to sage, uh, and that's the exemplar pattern that we should strive to conform to. I think that's excellent. I think that's excellent. Yeah. So, John, as we come to the end of this, because we've been talking for over 45 minutes, is there any final words of wisdom you would like to leave the listener with? Yes. Think about what would really matter at the end of your life. And ask yourself, how much time am I putting into that now? To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.